Welcome to the Immigrations Podcast, where we capture the unique stories of Asian undocumented individuals living in the United States. My name is Ju Hong, and I'm a Korean immigrant activist. Hi, everyone. Today we have Serafina as our guest. Serafina is passionate about the spirit of the immigrant and immigrant activists in the U.S., particular familiarity of the Korean and Asian American experience. Her own experiences as an undocumented immigrant activist started in 2014 as a fresh college grad. That led her to realize the gaps in the necessarily political nature of movement building and the spiritual needs of individual activist leaders to feel and be seen as human. She believes that activism in the long term needs to come from a critical self-awareness and the intentional deep nurturing of the activist self and soul as part from the social political movement and collective. She believes that undocumented immigrant stories and perspectives can unlock a lot of potential for immigrants and children of immigrants to know themselves and engage more fully in the issues of our times. Serafina, thank you so much for joining my podcast. And I'm so excited to have you on because every time I have a conversation with you, I always learn something new and gain different perspective. And you have so much depth of knowledge and wisdom that you carry. And I think listener will be inspired and people will take away something valuable lessons uh, from this podcast. And you have a very um, interesting and fascinating immigration journey and how you got here. And so if you could tell us about your immigration journey and how did you first involve in the immigrants movement? Yeah, Ju, thank you so much for the warm welcome. Um, I'm so delighted to be here. And um, yeah, I, um, well, I, I, I want to insert a quick, um, just like acknowledgement that what you're doing here, Ju, I think is so important. And the fact that you are someone impacted yourself, someone that is undocumented, um, hosting this podcast and creating a safe space for us to share our stories is invaluable. So um, thank you for giving me this opportunity to visit this, um, you know, very formative aspect of my life um, in a way that feels safe. Um, so there's that. And um, yeah, I, I also want to add really quick, I'm not undocumented right now. Um, I feel very honored to be in the presence of um, other guests who are all undocumented um, and whose stories I, okay, I'm not gonna lie. I just listened to a couple of them, and and I get I get feelings. <laughs> um, yeah, um, you know, they're just so brave. Um, they're very brave and so inspiring in their stories, um, and are clearly so committed to the community. So, um, so I'm, you know, I, I feel very honored to be here, and I hope that I can um, share something valuable. Um, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. It means a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess, um, yeah, so before, before I answer your question of like my immigration journey, I'm just going to really, yeah, really quickly just acknowledge I'm not undocumented as of last year, I'm a citizen, um, but I did grow up 16 years in the United States as undocumented, um, and that was in Chicago since I was 10 years old. So with that said, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. I was born and raised in Paraguay in South America. Um, and um gosh it was it was i loved my childhood there it's kind of idyllic to be honest i, I would go outside and play all the time <laughs> and, nice. and i think you know if i think about it now i think um you know i think what when where you spend your childhood years is actually very formative to your spirit um mm. like in ways that i'm only starting to appreciate now um in ways that in ways that i'm, I'm kind of an oddball i'm kind of different than other korean americans and i think paraguay has a lot to do with it Anyway, so I was born and raised there, um, and we migrated to the U.S. when I was 10 years old in 2001 with my family. My parents only had to look around in the country to realize that their girls, three girls, right, um, they don't have any opportunities um, in that country. So, so that's the reason we came to this country. And um, yeah, so we came here legally um, as most Asian American immigrant, undocumented immigrants, um, and we overstayed our visa. Um, of course, my parents did everything they could to try to keep our legal status alive. But essentially what happened is, um, you know, just a bad, bad run of luck. Um, the, the business that was sponsoring us, it was a sushi restaurant in suburban Chicago. Um, they went bankrupt and um, the, the window of time that we had in legality closed before we were able to find, um, you know, find another sponsor. But at the same time, also we had a, an attorney that um, was handling our case and essentially let, um, let our file sit in the cabinet until time ran out. He he didn't do his due diligence. And 
yeah and my mom will say like she can still remember the guy's name and she <laughs> yeah she's um she rules the day that i guess um yeah uh, he will find his downfall or something, I guess. Um, no, I, I totally understand. It's upsetting. Absolutely. You know, that uh, you're really relying on attorney that's supposed to really due diligence and then make sure to represent correctly mm -hmm. and accurately to adjust your status, but they mess it up and it just kind of impacted uh, entire family. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what really cuts is that he's supposed to be one of your kind, you know, that he gets your situation. He is Korean, right. an immigrant. Um, but anyway so moving forward from that um so yeah it's it's my family in chicago and um and um you know us three girls my parents and actually my hemani my mom's mom um that is living with us and and we're in this like two-bedroom apartment and growing up and what we're children it's you know you, you don't know you don't know you have it hard when you have it hard <laughs> as a child like life is life and i had it good i, I continue to be a pretty happy child running around being super active and things and um it's six years after when when i'm in high school um that actually my parents um decide that it might be better for them to move to los angeles um for better job opportunities as korean immigrants working under the table and um and so so they go over and they they leave us with my money um for her to raise us um and and that's kind of how we grew up actually. And I, I don't think that's actually very uncommon um, for the hemony to be raising the children, oftentimes in our immigrant communities, while the parents are right. working two or three jobs at a time, as my parents had been. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's that's how we grew up in Chicago. And um, and at the time, so so I'm I'm in high school, I'm at this um, public school called Northside College Prep. Um, and which I think was actually my most formative educational experience. Um, it was this like it's, it's actually really um, outstanding um, in the privileges that it affords, um, in the sort of education that it gives for a public school. Um, it was very like liberal artsy and um, encouraged exploration and um, just like a lot of the arts and humanities. So um, so I'm in the school and I'm having a good time and you know my parents are not there, but um, it's okay, I guess. Um, but it is the time that I find out that I'm undocumented. It's, it's when I'm applying for college applications um, where I think similar to most, um, you know, undocumented immigrants coming of age in this country, that's when you, but that's when you find out that you can't, um, that you can't apply and go to the schools that you would like to because you don't qualify for financial aid, and that's the like first substantial barrier that you face um, if you're undocumented, right? So, um, so that was obviously pretty rough, um, you know, and um, as a result of as a result of that, um, I attend community college and I then transfer to um, the State University, University of Illinois at Chicago, um, and major in accounting, which is <laughs> the most stable, reliable, safe thing you can major in. <clears throat> and and I, I just, I didn't want to do computer or anything. So, so yeah, so that's what I do. And um, yeah, and then I, you know, I managed to apply for DACA close to the end uh, because I, because for this particular career route um, where um, things are pretty solidly laid out in terms of the process and how you get a job and stuff. Like you do, you do need work authorization and um, and you need you need to have internships and stuff. So anyway, so I apply for DACA towards the end of my college, even even though it's actually it's been it's been some time that DACA has been out. But you know that there was a the remaining um, fear around like can I apply for this? Can I trust it to reveal my information to the government and all that? So anyway, I apply for DACA. I get it. Um, and of course, that in itself is a privilege compared to even a lot of um, your guests who didn't, you know, who didn't qualify. Um, and and um, that allows me to secure a job when I graduate, um, you know, starting in the next year in January 2015, to start working at PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is like one of the big four global accounting firms. And um, yeah, so that's, you know, that's pretty much, you know, up until the end of college, that's me growing up in the US, 16 years undocumented. I'm, I'm still there, right? And I am documented now. So that's that's a huge relief, um, even if it's temporary. So um, so that's me, uh, you know, like sort of my immigration journey and growing up here. Um, um, and I guess that's kind of, I'm, I'm going to insert really quick there. Um, it, it's at that point that I meet Hana Center, or like, you know, get to know mm -hmm. Hana Center in Chicago, which is, um, a wonderful um, local community organization um, that that um, is now a merger of like both like a very strong social services organization that's been there and also like a very much um, immigrant advocacy sort of organization. And anyway, so I I, um, I discover Hana Center and that's basically where 
I totally transform as a person and right. <laughs> <laughs> the person that you see me today. <laughs> well, how did you, uh, how did you uh, discovered uh, Hana Center? Yeah. And uh, if you could talk a little bit about um, how Hana Center or nonprofit organization, especially uh, immigrant advocacy organization, really helped you navigate it into this immigrant movement? Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so, you know, I will, I will generally say my family obviously um, means a lot to me and um, has been impacted and, um, you know, um, their status and the effects on them and um, them being, you know, obviously connected to me as family, all these things deeply affected me, but I also want to be very mindful of protecting their privacy. So I'm going to be a little selective here, like on a sort of intentional way. But yeah, I discovered HANA Center. Um, I, it, it had been there sort of in the background, people in my school and other like other public Chicago public schools have been active in their like great programming, like drumming or other like youth programs. Um, but I, you know, I, I think I subconsciously was, um, pushing it off and dismissing like these this sort of political awareness and such as like uncool or what have you. I just did not want to be associated for obvious reasons now. Um, but, but yeah, by the time that I graduated from college, like I, I had already, like I had already faced like some big um, challenges due to status. So it was not deniable anymore that like I, I am impacted by my status. And, um, and I did have time, um, sort of, I did have time to, you know, like volunteer and do something meaningful before I start a corporate job, um, after I took my CPA exams and passed all these, um, passed all of them. So, so yeah, so I decided to volunteer there and I thought I was just going to do something nice and, you know, just like typical volunteer <laughs> mentality, I'm going to do something nice, you know, like right. know, food pantry or whatever, but yeah, I go there <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I go there and it's like the heat of like trying to pass DAPA, you know, at that point, trying to gain some temporary protection for parents of DACA recipients. And so they need, you know, they need um, impacted folks to share their stories and, you know, like make the public see, like, why is it so important? Like, how is, you know, what is, what is it like, you know, if you're impacted? So that's when I started um, my activism journey. <laughs> and um, yeah, and um, yeah, that's where, you know, I, um, started with a press release and there's, you know, got, got exposed to like, oh, there's a whole world of like media that's like looking for people like me that are, you know, um, in order to really, really advance the cause. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, that's, that's how I got like, involved with Hana Center. So have you ever shared your personal story, uh, prior to Hana Center or that was kind of like a starting point of sharing your personal story? Oh gosh, that was the absolute first time ever. That was the wow. first time. And I, it would, that's why it's such a transfer, like, transformational moment in my life, Drew, because, you know, I, I tell everyone that was the single biggest turning point of my life. You know, before that, I was terrified. You know, here's the thing. Like, um, like if you were to ask me, like, what is one thing that I took away from that experience? I learned to uh, face whatever fears I, like, harbored about myself and the world. Um, like, I had a lot of fears about my worth, my image, my voice, my place in the future. Um, and until then I felt like just such a hindrance and so unworthy and so miserable. Um, I had been taught to hide myself, you know, of course, in case anyone found out about illegal status, not just mine, but my whole family. Right. And, right. um, this in turn just sort of like made me believe that I, I didn't deserve to be seen or heard like everyone else. I, you know, um, but, but I was able to face these fears finally, because, um, if I, ex like, if I accepted the premises of political activism, there was actually something else that I also got that was very valuable. Um, something much more valuable than anything I had ever access to before or will ever have access to in the future and could liberate me for once and for all. And that for me is the truth. Um, you know, the truth about me, my truth. Um, so um, yeah, it, it was a very, it was a very singularly just like black and white sort of, you know, change for me. Um, where like everything that I knew of myself and the world just like was completely, like completely became crystal clear all of a sudden. Wow. No, that's great. And just to give a context of, uh, for audience, you know, Serafina not only just share her story, but she shared her story very publicly national level. And you not only share your story and like national newspaper and other media outlet out there, but you also organized 
and Washington, D.C., and Chicago. And there's a really powerful image of you all over the place <laughs> where you just kind of fist up <laughs> and just shouting in front of the White House. That's yeah. like very like uh, stands out uh, whenever I, I think about you. And what was the reaction from your family or your friends uh, who never thought that you would ever do such thing like that and be participating in the uh, activism. Yeah, right. And like, none of this is common for anyone, right? Um, so, um, so my family it, it was un unfortunately mixed. Um, so my mom has um, unfortunately sort of never been able to see past her fears, um, and I just had to learn to live with it. Um, and I think my dad, there's a part of him that can appreciate it. Um, so I think it still really hurt him to see me so exposed and in pain. Um, but yeah, like I mentioned, I try to respect the privacy. And oh, and then with friends. Um, so honestly, at the time, I, I didn't really have many real friends that I could like confide in. Um, I will say I, I was then with my boyfriend um, who was, you know, by then we were like over four years together. And honestly, I cannot remember what his reaction was. It was just not very memorable to me. <laughs> And what about uh, as you kind of get involved in the immigrant movement, you met with a lot of different undocumented immigrants, especially Asian undocumented people. And what were some of your uh, reactions or any uh, memories that you um, that you want to share with us uh, during those uh, moments with the undocumented peers? It's um, the whole thing, to be honest, is has remained very painful to me. Um, and it's kind of to acknowledge like my involvement over the years, um, but but they've also been very kind of sporadic, like in and out, in and out throughout the years. Um, and that's because even if I couldn't quite like voice it then or, you know, like explain why or how or whether it's justified or not, like it was all it's all been so much too much for me. And it still is, <laughs> you know, even if I'm I'm completely a citizen. And um, yeah, so um, I think the whole thing is um, is very painful. If not, if not because it reminds me of the systemic conditions that we're living in today, that that everyone is part of in some way or another. Um, so if not for this grand idea, then then because you know, of course, like I'm gonna have a lot of um, empathy for people's individual circumstances, knowing that they're wonderful people, very well-meaning, and just just trying to be human. <laughs> um, but but you know that these things are like. A barrier um, in in trying to live their lives. Um, if not that, then I then it's painful for me because it reminds me of who I was and what I was struggling with, um, mm -hmm. and what I and the things that are connected to it still like um, so so palpable to me um, that I'm afraid are gonna carry me away, you know, mm -hmm. carry me back perhaps. Um, so um, so there yeah. All that said, you know, there are so many admirable like, like I said, really courageous people out there, like doing the work in a committed way, like going in day in and day out, serving, you know, serving the immigrant communities, um, or otherwise supporting these activists or being these activists, of course, um, that, you know, where they're, they're putting everything on the line, they're really, um, you know, everything is at stake for these people that, um, you know, their careers or otherwise, yeah, like their, their being, <laughs> um, their self-conceptions, um, in order to get this message across to the rest of the country or the world that, um, you know, we deserve to be treated as human beings. So, um, you know, I have nothing but like deep respect and admiration for everyone involved. And um, um, yeah, you know, I, yeah, I think of them a lot. <laughs> That's great. And knowing that you've been in the involved in the immigrants movement spaces, uh, in your view, where should the movement should go from here? Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I I don't know that I have the right to say where the movement should go from here. Um, I remember, you know, like last time we we met up, um, you know, you pointed out that many people feel that those no longer undocumented should like have a say on matters related to the community or the movement, and I think that's really fair. Um, you know, I, I respect that. Um, but I think I, I can care about the people involved um, and not just the activists, but like I said, all the allies that are that are in the fight together. Right. I think I can observe. I can relate, understand. I can support and affirm. I can speak in ways um, that they may be compromised 
to do because like their livelihood is on the line or what have you. Um, I think I'm just, uh, I think I am like better positioned to assert like the confusing mix of feelings that arise in the process of activism. And, um, and I can also just like support um, support in like the process of thinking, you know, thinking with clarity for activists and organizers, because like the labor that they do is just so much, it's just so exhausting um, that even thinking can be like difficult. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I want to talk about that a little bit more deeper around just being um, just citizenship status in general. Um, I know that uh, you've been undocumented for the past 14 years. Recently, you got uh, uh, documentation. So, uh, so for you, what does a citizenship mean to you? And I wonder, citizenship remove or erase your past experience or whether like it change your lifestyle or outlook in life and, and you know that in the context of also this in this larger context of immigrants movement um does having paper matter uh, or not i just wanted to kind of wanted to hear your personal experience on that yeah so um so, you know, getting citizenship, you know, of course, there's um, the immediate benefit of like my parents gaining some legal status and some some legal protection. Um, and, and then there's, of course, the fact that I can like now travel outside the U.S. and um, all that now that I'm grown up and, um, you know, don't have to go to college again or whatever, like, get financial aid. Um, you know, I, I've, I've never been to Korea and um, now oh, I, wow. I, I could go and um, I could actually take my time to like really think about it before I go, you know, be ready yeah. for it. Um, but yeah, no, with regards to like, how did it feel? Um, you know, like by the time that you get citizenship in this country, um, you know, that's like over a decade later and stuff, you're, you're a totally different person. Mm. <laughs> like, like the person that I was when I was 10 to 22 years old, um, you know, growing up and coming of age in this country, you know, constantly feeling like at every stage, feeling left behind by peers that I might even outdo, you know, um, that person who really needed this, this citizenship. Um, it's just like, you know, has grown so much that like, by the time that you even get a green card, it's like, it's not even about me anymore. It's, there's 11 million people in this country that need citizenship, that need like some security and stability and um, safety in this country. Um, it, yeah, and so, um, and and of course that's not like, that's not for everyone. You know, I, I guess I'm thinking about like the ones that are, that, are, that do become politically empowered and do get involved in the political process and understand where we fit into the whole system. Um, but yeah, by the time that you get it, citizenship is just like, okay, that's nice. You know, I mean, you, you, you have got the permanent um, security through green card for sure. But even then green card too, it's just like, what's the value of this thing? You know, what, um, mm. what did I just get admitted to? Um, do I want it now anymore? Do it, do I, you know, um, is it as meaningful to me as it, had been in the past. Right, right. And you know, for me, you know, I'm, I'm coming coming from like a mixed status family and I'm the only person who has uh, DACA. And obviously mm. DACA is not like a permanent residency or, or, or US citizenship status, but at least some sort of uh, privilege aspect of, you know, you could work and travel and do certain things that uh, other peers cannot do who do not have DACA. And I carry with this sense of burden and guilt and obligation because I have certain status uh, than uh, my family. Yeah. And I'm curious to know whether you resonated with that. And if so, like, how do you deal with all this uh, different emotions uh, coming with this uh, status? Yes, uh, Ju, gosh, there's so many things to be unpacked um, about this. So, um, you know, um, I, I do think like a lot of us like face survivor's guilt. Um, and I think, and I, I think I did, um, you know, I still kind of do, but, um, you know, I think, um, the thing is you can forever look at where you are in relation to other groups or, or others. And absolutely we're all here for acknowledging and fighting against this systemic oppression, but at the same time, um, um, at the same time, let me tell you something else. Um, my husband, Eric, uh, who's just wonderful, so supportive um, and happens to be Jewish American. Um, you know, I've had I've had a, um, a moment back when I was in grad school um, where I was reading Viktor Frankl's The Meaning of Life. Um, 
And, um, you know, I, I was reading the stuff that he that he faced and just the atrocities, um, you know, that um, he experienced as a Holocaust survivor. Um, that's, you know, then writing this this um, book about, you know, what what is the meaning of life when you face such atrocities. And um, I was, you know, I was asking him, like, I, I guess I was just kind of, um, yeah, you know, I was trying to figure out, like, how am I supposed to live <laughs> after having faced something so um, horrid? Um, and, um, you know, I, I guess I was telling him something along the lines of like, um, gosh, I'm not doing enough, you know, I'm not, um, fighting enough or, you know, whatever, like, like, you know, I'm having it so good. And, and the way he responded is that, um, you know, what Frankl faced is not acceptable. And what we face is also not acceptable. It's just, it's just bad. Um, you know, it doesn't, um, have to mean that um, others should be suffering or, um, you know, or that that should be in any way a standard as to, you know, what dictates how we live um, or how we can make up for it. Um, so, um, you know, it's especially if you're, you know, when you are still documented Jew um, and you're, you know, you're still with your family who, of course, you know, relies on you so much. And I, I know you personally, I know that you're very hardworking, so loyal, so devoted. Um, yeah, I, um, it's, it's hard to like, sort of look at yourself from that sort of distance. And, and then on top of that, look at your whole family from the, that sort of distance, um, with forgiveness, um, that, that emotional capacity, but, um, yeah, I think, you know, I think that is, that is the aim. Yeah. I think that, um, there's a lot that needs to unpack with this citizenship status to this family dynamic. Uh, there's so many things that um, need to work on, and I'm curious to know when you deal with um, this type of situation, how do you take care of yourself? What are uh, what ways? What are some like coping mechanism or like what brings you joy? How do you take care of yourself, especially going through like this type of uh, difficult times? Um, you know, I've been very, very privileged in so many ways. Um, like not only have I gotten to the point of like marriage and citizenship at this point, but um, I've had a lot of breaks in between. Um, so I, you know, yeah, like as you mentioned in the intro, I used to be a public accountant, a CPA, right? And that was strictly because it's a solid, reliable thing to do, and I, I needed to support or help out my family. But um, but it was then that I met Eric and um, was able to get married, and um, and he supported me and exposed me to other possibilities. And um, I was able to quit my job and um, go to grad school um, and get a master's of social work degree. Um, and, you know, I, I went to, you know, I was, I was completely uh, motivated by my experiences and, you know, as an undocumented person as, and a, as an immigrant rights activist to, to pursue this degree and see what other potential like effective ways there are to create change in the world. And to be honest, that experience um, in that regard didn't, really do that much um mm. i think yeah i mean um like i think the most valuable things that we need um to learn in order to effectively bring about change cannot be learned in a classroom of course not um you know um and so um so i you know anyway so i i, I got to go to grad school again right very privileged um opportunity and, and that also presented a lot of break in between, a lot of break to question and um, mull over ideas and, and think about myself. Um, so, you know, I did grad school and then after I graduated, we both graduated um, with our degrees. Eric was getting a PhD um, also at U Chicago um, for, for chemistry. We both moved to New York City because he um, he got a job offer here. And um, and then, you know, I, ha I was looking for jobs again um, with no connections and that afforded a little bit of a break again and and then I, I did get a job I, I worked um, part-time at Columbia School of Social Work as a program manager and um, and I loved that job I um, really applied myself and and what I knew to be right and good um, but um, but yeah so like that was part-time also and, and that's when actually when I started doing art um, and actually honestly art started just because like moving to New York, you realize it's so accessible. Like everyone does art, <laughs> you know, um, my landlady was an art professor. It's um, kind of like in LA where like people doing acting. Oh gosh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, everyone has their side, like passion slash hustle over here. 
it's right. uh, it's it's a very ambitious yeah ambitious city so anyway so i started doing art and um you know that was of course a way for me to like process things and um affirm myself and get my truth out there and or as my therapist says like rewrite my narrative right um so i was already starting to express a little bit through that um and then you know after having done that job i i quit last year in january because honestly i, I got exploited um which oh, no. um which honestly is not new but <laughs> and or uncommon in in that field but um but it, it was a um yeah it was particularly different um anyway so um so i left the job and um and then yeah and i i've been lucky enough honestly again so much more privilege um that eric has been um supporting me in in pursuing you know like continuing to pursue art um during that time and um and other yeah other passion projects um and so um and then you, you know as, as you mentioned I'm, I'm working with memoir and that started like a, a month ago um anyway all these all these ways have been in some way or another a way to like affirm my own experiences <laughs> and reality and beliefs um and um um you know having that sort of space and time and energy to um yeah to think about like all that I had lost because I didn't um, have the opportunities that others had um, or because I, I had to, you know, guard myself and like essentially, you know, dissociate and all these like sort of coping mechanisms that um, basically force you to sort of leave parts of you behind. Um, mm. So, you know, gather all those pe like all those parts again and um, trying to build a hole again. Um, you know, that's um, it's all very intensive sort of um, active stuff that um you know i had been trying to pursue like even unconsciously for a long time um so yeah you know i mean that obviously that can look like a lot of different things um you know writing or or art making as as activities of creation or expression absolutely can be that but um i think even just like doing nothing and just like you know yeah resisting input even um i think a lot of you know a lot of us are like i can't even process stuff since like five ten you know 50 years ago whatever i don't know um so you know yeah um whatever um yeah it's a it's a it's a careful balance between whatever you can do to protect and just be yourself at any given point um but also yeah, but also just like trying to gather those pieces one by one and trying to recollect and trying to explore um and check check your understanding of the world and and your own self-conception um yeah yeah no that's great and it resonated so much in terms of when you said uh you know like you feel like we're missing something um because of our status when i first got my daca I feel like I need to catch up everything that I couldn't do in the past. So mm. I try to travel as much as I can. That was like one big thing for me. So as soon as I got my DACA, like I went to like West Coast, East Coast, anywhere possibly that I can go uh, with the limitation, obviously, domestically. Right. And uh, struggle around. I feel like I'm not doing enough. I feel like I'm missing mm. out something. And it's been uh, very difficult. And I'm still trying to um address that issue yeah uh, right now um uh, but that really resonated with me when you mentioned about that and i'm curious to know now that you are really becoming an emerging artist and what have you learned about yourself and what type of art uh do you thinking of pursuing or focusing on or are you working on multi-level of uh, art industry that you're trying to partake in yeah yeah so okay yeah so um so with regards to art um so i put up so i i was doing it briefly like ever like i mean just you know seriously um i i'd only done it for like a couple of years until um you know like a month ago um yeah um and and during that time i definitely explored a lot you know did various media uh acrylic watercolor oil just like tried to do everything um i and i just to describe a little more of the sort of art that i'm interested in, like i would do oftentimes i am drawn to figurative art um and like portraiture um um yeah so so that's the sort of thing i i was i had been doing um but i i am on a halt now because to be honest you <laughs> like my obsession has been with expression and really i think it is it is rewriting my narrative and um and to be quite frankly, until I started writing this memoir, um, I didn't think I could. <laughs> like I, 
I think I've always had this urge to like say it in words because words allow you to be much more like to, to express something much more complicated and um, um, narrative um, than, than art um, can. And um, I, you know, but, but writing pertains to this, like, you know, to this hallowed um, like circle of people that belong there from your undocumented perspective, like that you don't belong to because you didn't go to the right schools or whatever the hell myths that you've gone into. And right. um, yeah, so I, I think the thing, but yeah. So all that said, I, I think what I'd always um, kind of wanted was to write um, and it feels right now actually to, to do it. Um, but um, you know, just as like, just as with art too, to be honest, before that, I just didn't think I could, I like have the right something permission or mm. qualifications or something to do it. I just didn't know it was that accessible. Um, yeah. And also I, I confess, I'm also just not obsessed enough about like aesthetics as, as I, I think artists should be. Um, but that said, I, I really do love art too. Um, so yeah, with art, you know, like, I think I'm going to pick it back up when I'm ready. I think, um, yeah, I, I'm going to do that, but but for example, but it is connected in the sense of like, honestly, I, the switch to writing happened when, you know, Eric and I, you know, I saw you in, in the Bay, um, mm -hmm. two months ago, we were over there and we were having a chat over dinner once. And, um, he pointed out, Serafina, honestly, I think, I think you are really imaginative, but it's not coming out in your painting or your blog writing. Um, and I'm curious, you know, I'm curious about that. And I know that probably sounds like horrible, but actually for me, it was really affirming. And that's, that's how we are with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, it was very affirming and I was like, that is so true. That is, um, yeah, that's a good, that's a good way to put it. Um, and we were, you know, talking about it and I came to realize, like, I think there's something really Korean about, um, like, you know, if I were to portray something in a way that's not like naturalistic or realistic, it feels almost like a morally wrong thing to do. Like mm. I'm doing, I'm doing it wrong. You know, I'm being, I'm doing an action that might make me a person that's doing something wrong, <laughs> you know? And, um, so it's not even, so it's hard it's hard to even think about it just as like a matter of imagination or creativity, like, you know, like to, to paint outside that line or to make the skin color blue or whatever, these things are actually feel wrong to me. Um, and it's hard to go against that. Like, I don't want to be an amoral person. So like, so that's kind of like that conversation was the impetus for me, like to switch to writing actually, um, mm. to, to note these things that can't be, can't be really quite expressed through painting. Um, but, but yeah, but I honestly, that kind of unraveled the whole set of other, like levels of trauma that I just didn't realize were there, um, you know, that actually um, have everything to do with all the things I've started in the past and wasn't able to quite finish. Um, no, I think that's great. I think that you, yeah. you're such a talented and gifted in so many different ways and you can um, uh, draw, paint and write. And I actually also read a couple of your blogs mm -hmm. that you wrote and oh. I think you're such a great writer and let's talk about your uh, memoir as your search for a korean american identity i want to really dive a little bit more into identity piece i'm curious to know how do you identify yourself um and i'm also curious because you um are born and raised in paraguay yeah. and you also have a, this korean identity and this american identity and so how do you navigate all that and uh, what uh, draw more closer to you in that aspect? So, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I love this question. <laughs> I think, I think you know, Drew, what do you think? I, I think all of us on documentary people are kind of, a, we have to kind of be, I don't know, there's like, we have a separate relationship with identity. <laughs> Complicated, distinctive. Um, so let me first try to explain to you why I'm obsessed with identity. And then I'm going to tie into why Korean American. So, and then the Paraguayan. Um, so, you know, I was thinking about this. Um, so someone I know that isn't documented once like was sort of retorted, um, like retorted that like out of like probably frustrated response to my obsession with it. Like they were like, like what, like what's so important about identity search? This is like such a privileged like Asian American thing, you know? <laughs> and <laughs> and um, I definitely have sympathy for the position that, you know, that person speaks from. Um, on the other hand, I've also had a couple of, um, you know, Asian Americans that you and I, like that we would consider privileged, right? <laughs> Make a similar remark of like, um, you know, like what, what's, what does it matter? What, what, what does it matter in like a hundred years? Like this identity stuff, like essentially like, Serafina, why are you going bending over backwards about this? Um, 
So, you know, so this is my response, I guess. Um, identity matters to me, like first, because it, it dictates everything that we do from what we eat, where we live to like who we go to war with. Um, and the like the philosopher Kwame Anthony Appiah has actually a really great book on this called um, The Lies That Bind, um, Rethinking Identity. Um, basically, like, you know, we believe that, you know, not picking a side is picking a side, right? And insofar as sides are based on identity, like then you better know your identity, right? Mm. Um, so that's like the big picture reason. But but actually, uh, but actually, I came to it like much in a different, like more personal way, of course. Um, you know, like a lot of it has to do with my undocumented experience. Um, it's because so many times, like um, you know, I wanted to belong to identity groups like like Korean or American or Paraguayan that I couldn't belong to. Uh, it's because so many times I've been represented and spoken for by people whom I'd feel do not, I do not identify with and they have no right to represent me. Um, you know, um, and, um, and ultimately I think the reason that I need to know who I am, um, like even among people with whom I share the same identity groups with is because I've been, um, in like rooms with people that I know that, um, I also know they didn't know themselves and I found very difficult to trust. Um, like they basically seemed to me like they were groomed to be politicians, um, which, mm. you know, it's not an inherently bad way to be like for them, it's about building power for the right end. And, you know, like I respect that. Um, but I like, personally, I fear very much what people who don't know themselves, um, and are not attuned to their inner being, um, uh, may bring about when they have power. Um, like I've been mm -hmm. reading um, James Baldwin's No Name in the Street, and he he has a little segment where um, he's talking about like it's the failure of the white American to be attuned to their private selves that um, has led to white people othering and scapegoating black Americans. Um, mm -hmm. And I think in this regard, Baldwin shows us how dangerous dangerous it is to not know who we are. Um, so actually, my search for like knowing who I am. Um, is actually very much tied to my need to know that my actions and words are aligned with the most critically examined and unified and consistent and like gut-wrenchingly honest self, um, you know, that I am. And and otherwise, if it's not, I feel like my words are like meaningless. Um, so that's that's why I think identity is important. Um, and then tying it back to Korean Americanness, um, why why am I choosing my search for Korean American identity in this memoir? Um, so for me, it's the most affecting identity in my being, in my worldview. Um, you know, even if I've never been to Korea, right? Like even if I was born in Paraguay and lived in the U.S., never been to Korea, like the Korean worldview instilled in me by my Korean parents um, is right. like, so, yeah, right. And that's not with all ethnicities. I, I like I have an Indian American friend for whom like being Muslim is, you know, like is most affecting is. Yeah. So but anyway, but that's me. And um, and um of course, there's also the um, that Korean American actually for me also has been the hardest um, and also the least commented on, like in ways that are relevant to what I'm looking for. And I feel, um, yeah, like, you know, yeah, like if you are Korean American and undocumented, like you've been legally rejected in the US, um, it, like in my personal observation, I think that's why it makes even more important that we have a heritage that we belong to, that we um, um, that we know who we are, um, have a group that we belong to. Um, and, um, as it happens, I also believe that as undocumented immigrants, we actually have like a very valuable perspective, um, based on our experiences and also based on where we're positioned in the political process to comment on the topic of Korean American identity. Um, you know, like there are over 3 million Koreans in the U S and one in seven of them is undocumented. Right. You know, we just like, people are always shocked to hear that because like no one ever talks about it because of the, the. Um, the stigma in our communities is so high, like definitely more so than Latino communities, I think. Um, and, you know, I've, of course, had I've had such a good fortune to meet like a good amount of those Koreans in the social justice spaces that we occupy, like, and not just the impacted folks, but like everyone, behind, everyone behind the scenes, um, you know, running programs, youth programs, or, you know, development, what have you. Um, but, um, but for the rest of the 3 million, I've wondered like so many times, where is everyone else? You know, mm. why aren't they here supporting the immigrant rights movement? Like, how is it, do they not see the direct connection of the immigrant rights system that, you know, just for like randomly, like, you know, randomly um, chose some of us to 
you know, to leave us out um, while the rest of us are still, you know, like they're still um, part of the immigrant, the immigration system that allowed them to legally be here, um, um, but are also equally embroiled and under white supremacy and, you know, everything that affects like immigrants in general. Um, so um, I think I think the answer is that I think that the pain of migration and the pain of feeling disconnected to our parents' dreams and homeland and the feeling of disconnectedness, um, you know, and, and perpetually feeling like foreigners in our own nation, you know, all this like gets mixed into the pain of not knowing who we are and, um, and of finding it so difficult to know who we are that, um, you know, that getting involved with immigration just gets lost in all of that. Like, and, um, yeah, so um, so I guess from my perspective, it seemed like trying to get other Korean Americans interested or interested enough about or you know caring enough to get involved in the fight for immigrant rights, is like is like getting involved in the question of who we are, <laughs> you know, mm. as an as a diaspora. So um, so that's why I care about the Korean American identity, um, you know, among all my identities more so. Um, I just, it's just very affecting and it's hard. And I think it's, it impacts so many people that are actually wondering the same things. Um, and then the Paraguay thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Paraguay thing. Um, yeah, you know, Paraguay, I I look at, it's, it almost feels like sort of mythical or surreal to me sometimes. Like my childhood mm. there was so happy. Just like, no. just like okay. playing with the kids and stuff outside, you know, like all sorts of games, <laughs> you know, also going to school and like school is just kind of easy to be honest. And um, yeah, but you know, I think now I look like, I think in terms of like in, in the spirit of wanting to connect with, um, wanting to connect with what Paraguay stands for me and, and Paraguay spirit for me, um, you know, I, I read a little bit of like um, Latin American literature, like particularly um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, and, you know, I'm actually a really slow reader. And this is, um, I'm reading 100 Years of Solitude. And this is like, I've tried, I've tried reading it multiple times, and I've never finished it, because it's actually so much. It's like, mm. there's so much going on. And gosh, it's just so, it's so tragic and beautiful. <laughs> you can only take it in bits. But, um, but just like reading, like, yeah, reading about the impossibility of being Latin American um, through, through this novel. Um, and yeah, just, um, yeah, it's very, actually it sounds very Korean as I, as I'm saying it now, but, um, anyway, but, um, yeah, it, um, and the imagery, yeah, like the, the imagery that he uses and stuff that, um, that, that stuff feels very authentically what I remember fondly about Paraguay. Um, and, um, yeah. It's it's for I will say just as a simple note, it is it is dis like distinctly very much more attuned to feelings than like what I than what I perceive Koreanness to be. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Wow, that that was a lot and very very powerful. And uh, this this topic of identity is like another episode that we have to do. <laughs> There's so many things to yes. talk about. Yeah. How should others? Uh, discover their own identities and do you have any processes or uh, thought process that kind of you go through that you could kind of help us um, share tips or suggestions for those who are kind of want to discover their own identities yeah um so i think there's like two big things that you can do just to keep it simple um and this is to explore and to remember um so yeah when you explore and you remember you're gonna it's gonna help you figure out what you like and dislike what you what interests you or motivates you like what is meaningful or formative to you and what connects you to others um yeah so so i would say you know try to do those things and when you do these like note how they make you feel and why right um if they hurt you maybe they made you feel underrepresented or excluded like note this too um and this is gonna you know, this is this might require like therapy or whatever is available and works for you as healing, like a lot of that. Um, um, but you know, yeah, do what moves you to the level of like discomfort that you can take, right? Obviously, um, and um, you know, sometimes, like I mentioned, sometimes it just might mean like you just you need to block off other like sensory informational input because it's all too much, and that's okay too. You know, like we 
we might need to just dissociate to just like get through the moment and that's totally okay um uh, you know just like trust your instinct um as to what feels right to you um and um yeah i think you know overall just um the important thing is just exploring and remembering um you know look to the past for hints or clues like as much as you can bear it um and and keep an open mind while looking into the future like all you really have to do is like be honest with yourself and remind yourself why this is important to you great thank you thanks for sharing and this is a great segue to my last final question for you mm -hmm. what advice would you give to yourself and why yeah um to my younger self, I would say um, you're doing okay, <laughs> um, but don't doubt yourself too much and just like, you know, it's okay to let loose a little <laughs> or a lot. <laughs> great, great. Well, thank you. Thank you, Serafina. I just want to acknowledge you uh, for, for sharing all the knowledge uh, with us. And I think, as I mentioned, you have so much uh, depth of knowledge and wisdom that you carry and I always learn something new and you know every time I need some sort of advice or need a different perspective I feel like you're the person that I want to reach out to mm -hmm. and you give a lot of inspiration in so many different ways uh, whether through writing or through your art um, and um, I want to continue to uh, cherish our friendship and I'm really excited for you uh, for the next projects and we'll be going next um, and how can people follow you and support your work and follow your journey? Thank you, Drew. I, I feel so lucky to know you too. And to know like people like you are out there fighting and standing ground for, for the communities in need. Um, yeah, for me, I, I, uh, I'm not really selling anything. <laughs> I don't have anything to blog, but, um, I, you know, I just like, I put stuff out there on my Instagram and my website. So, um, yeah, check those out you know, maybe you'll find something that's um, just makes you like think differently or about something, you know? Yeah, definitely. So I'll make sure to share the link on my end. And I hope all the listeners uh, follow and check out uh, Serafina's um, IG and the website. Uh, she has like a blog and a painting and other work uh, that she's doing. And um, so yeah, well, thanks again, Serafina. And I hope to see you in person again soon. Likewise, you take care. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Also, follow me on Instagram at Immigrations. See you at the next episode.